Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron, and with me, as always, Adam Pawatic. Today, our guest is Chris Spoke, the founder of Housing Matters. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting episode. The topic is Yimbyism. Yes. Which is yes in my backyard for those that are you know trying to put the acronym together. And so why don't we start with just how did you start this? How did you end up just deciding, you know what, I'm going to start a nonprofit called Housing Matters. And where did you get there? Sure. So I had been seeing some activity in the Bay Area, which uh, is obviously a very expensive housing market, San Francisco and the surrounding regions. Were you, and, li- were you living there at the time? No, I, I wasn't. But going back even further, I guess I've, I've been tracking the issue of housing prices in North America and urbanization and, and kind of the pressure it puts on on cities. Was that just for fun? Yeah, I, I have a background education in economics. So I'm, I'm interested in that and public policy. I, I see this issue as being one that's kind of uh, underrated in terms of its importance. And just kind of like tracking the, the trend in housing prices in Toronto, a little down the line, we could see, you know, a scenario in which Toronto becomes as unaffordable as the Bay Area. So we'll start there. And then in, in the Bay Area, what, what I saw that was interesting was we've had these kind of legacy housing advocacy groups for the past 30, 40, 50 years. And most of these cities, including in the Bay Area, they haven't ultimately been all that effective. Uh, housing prices have continued to go up. So these it, would be these would be YIMBY groups or their version of it. No, the, so so the legacy groups I would call just kind of your traditional housing advocacy groups, groups that focus a lot more on things like rent control, which has been historically proposed as a solution to rising housing prices. But what was interesting to me about what I was seeing in the Bay Area, just kind of as a consequence maybe of the fact that you have a lot of young, smart tech workers, is this rise of a kind of a new, separate, different type of advocacy called YIMBYism. And it was spearheaded by a, a lady there named Sonia Trous. And they were kind of approaching this problem from a more market-based perspective and focusing on things like supply constraints and the need for more housing to house more people. It was very interesting to me where it kind of merged my interest in economics and in public policy with kind of the need for maybe on-the-street activism. And they were doing it in a way that was getting headlines that's been replicated in most major American cities and even some Western European cities. London Yimby is a group that's, I think, very, doing this very well in the UK. And basically, I got interested in kind of their approach. Living in Toronto, obviously, I was very familiar with the fact that rents continue to rise, housing prices continue to rise. So I started by looking for a group that I could volunteer for to get involved with kind of Toronto's Yimby group. And it turns out Toronto didn't have a Yimby group. So uh, I booked a space, we invited some people, put some flyers out and uh, had our first Housing Matters event. And, And from there, kind of continued to gain steam. People are clicking with our messaging and the way that we're thinking about this problem, again, in a way that's a little bit different from some of the legacy older organizations. And and that was about two years ago. If you were to go back before the creation of your group, and I'm sure you, you went to Google and punched in uh, UNB in Toronto, was there anything that came up or there was just a vacuum? Of, uh... there, there was a, so there was a vacuum in the sense of there was, there was no real group. There was one guy who had a Twitter account called Toronto Yimby, And it turns out he's now a good friend of mine and, and involved with Housing Matters. There was a group called Yimby something, maybe Yimby Toronto, but their use of the term Yimby predates kind of this modern use of the term Yimby. So they organized like uh, farmer's markets in their backyard and that sort of thing. So it's more of like a, a community group, but not anything focused on housing or housing prices. Yes, I want events in my backyard. Exactly. Not, yeah. Yes, I want so they, development they, in they my backyard. They took the URL we would have had, which is why we're Housing Matters. Um, I did find there were some groups in Vancouver, actually, that were saying some interesting things. 
Uh, one of them is called Generation Squeeze that focuses on kind of issues that affect millennials and younger people. And obviously a big, a big issue is, is housing prices. And they were also taking this kind of like supply side approach to thinking about the problem. Specific to the Vancouver market. But specific yeah. to the Vancouver market. I think they've tried to expand to Toronto or, or maybe they have, but I think it, it's lost a lot of its core elements that made it interesting in Vancouver. It's a different group running it here and, and they're more focused on kind of demand side solutions, which we could talk about a little bit. So there was no kind of pure Yemi group that was bringing in young tech workers, young professionals, people who wouldn't normally be interested in a- activism or advocacy. So we, we kind of decided we'd fill that gap. We set the table, I guess, so to speak. Now, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. So let's not get into too much detail, but let's just define the affordability problem sure. and what, what you're seeing and why. And, I, and I, maybe I can even back up. I'm not surprised there was no Yimby group, really, because you know five years ago, it wasn't really prominent. There wasn't really an affordability problem. And even five, maybe maybe longer, eight years ago, Toronto didn't see itself as this big, you know, world-class city. We were still this small little folky Canadian city. And right. now all of a sudden, I think we've, because of the development, because of the growth that we've seen in the city, that's sort of driven the affordability problem. So yeah. maybe define it in your eyes and then let's talk about how you've been, you know, advocating against it or for it, I guess is probably a better way to put it. So, so we started this group in the spring of 2017. What we've seen over that year of us kind of working on this and, and doing a lot of research on it is that last year in 2017, we've seen the, the most rapid increase in rents that we had seen in 15 years. And we have the lowest va- rental vacancy rate that we've had in 16 years. So it's about 1.1% for purpose-built rental. Urban Nation, I think, has some, done some good research on the rental vacancy rate for condos put on the secondary market for rental, and it's even lower than that. So we're, we're probably sitting at a 0.7 to 1.1% rental vacancy Which is effectively rate, full occupancy. Which is basically full occupancy. A healthy market should be probably around the 3 to 4% range. I, I'd argue 5 to 7. So if, yeah, sure. sure the, point they, is, the point is it's, it's really, really it's depressed. Extremely, yeah. It's extremely low. We think of those as being a symptom of the true problem. And the true problem uh, are kind of a, an array of supply constraints that make it harder for developers the industry to build as much housing as, as we probably need in the city. So we, we did a lot of thinking and, and researching on, you know, what are these supply constraints, trying to itemize them. And the biggest supply constraints are land use rules. So if you look at our official plan or zoning bylaw, these kind of define what you can build and where and how. And, and now we spend a lot of time talking about how these documents are outdated. They don't really contribute to a dynamic growing city, but in fact, they're holding back housing supply in a way that's leading to high prices, low rental vacancy rates, and, and people being pushed out to the suburbs and exits. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, OMB in there. So how much of an impact do you think we're going to see through through that? So the OMB acted historically as a check on local politics and local decision-making, a judicial check. So you would be able to kind of base your decisions on sound planning principles, on policy, versus kind of the feelings of residents' associations. Uh, so we've seen tr- the OMB as being kind of one of the things that Toronto actually had going for it. So, so we talk a lot about su- supply constraints, but Toronto actually builds quite a bit of housing uh, relative to other major cities in North America. We just don't build enough. And one of the reasons we think that we've managed to build as much as we have is because we have the OMB, again, as a check on local decision making. We're very concerned with the fact that we might be losing that judicial check, or at least that it might be weakened, and that it... it Bill 139, the bill that kind of introduced OMB reform, devolves a lot of the power back to the municipalities who, looking at the evidence, looking at the last 20, 30 years, are, in our view, kind of least able to do this in a dispassionate, principle-based way. Explain why, just so that we connect the dots. We've talked Again, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but let's just yeah. reiterate so that we can So councillors are ultimately elected by 
the sort of people who join residence associations. So these are people who skew older, who skew homeowner, who've actually done very well over the last 10, 20 years of, of rising housing prices because they own housing. So they have some skin in the game. Their, their home equity values have increased. Uh, they have a status quo bias. They've been in the neighborhoods long enough that they could remember moving in when they were sleepy neighborhoods and, and probably would like to remain sleepy neighborhoods, would like the neighborhoods to remain sleepy neighborhoods. So counselors get elected by kind of not like a, a random sample of their ward, but it, it skews in, in these demographic directions, which means that counselors are much more likely to pay attention to the concerns of the residence associations than the 25-year-old trying to find a rental apartment on, you know, a minimum wage or, or just above minimum wage salary that can't, can't afford it. Who might be gone in two years after living in an area briefly. That's right. If, yeah. if, if you're a renter, you don't have the same deep roots in any one ward. We have Much ward. more mobile. We're much more mobile. Unlike Vancouver, we have a ward-based system. Uh, so if you move from one ward to another, then kind of your political representation changes completely. And it makes perfect sense for counselors to care about the people who've been in their wards the longest and who will remain there the longest. Who, 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 not surprisingly, don't really care about the cost of rent. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and just kind of on that same point of mobile versus not, I think what we should talk a little bit about public meetings. If a project requires a rezoning application, there's a public meeting where the neighbors could ha- have input on the project and raise any concerns that they might have. And that process just necessarily skews to people who are impacted by the cost versus the benefits of the project. I recently moved from College in Dover Court to Leslieville. I would have never been made aware of a public meeting in Leslieville to the building that I would have ultimately moved into because I wasn't an immediate neighbor. So we have even the public meeting process is skewed to overweight the voices of people who are immediately adjacent to the building who would have the most to lose in terms of shadow impacts, increased pressure on parking, more traffic congestion. Whereas the people who benefit from it, which is, you know, it's a regional benefit, they don't even know these public meetings are happening, let alone are they incentivized to show up to any one of them. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, you know, every apartment building I've ever lived in, I never received a single notice. But now that I'm in a single family home in an area with a pretty rich history of NIMBYism, I get flyers all the time about uh, neighborhood organization groups that want to fight development. Right. And you know, I get them constantly, but those are funded by somebody. They're not just a public service announcement. Somebody's funding them. So, of course, they're targeting the groups that are going to show up. When you see them on front lawns all the time, say no to X development. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So then not only is it that our political process overweights uh, the voices of people who might be opposed to development, but so does our bureaucratic planning process. So on both fronts, we're not seeing kind of the benefits weighed as as importantly as, as maybe the cost of, of new development. So do you regularly attend uh, public meetings as part of your efforts in uh, Housing Matters? I do. So I've personally been to over 40 public meetings. As a group, we've, we've done much more than that. So we've been to public meetings throughout the city. We've faced uh, very tough crowds. We've faced some less tough, tough crowds. Uh, but the, the general trend that we see is that people who are opposed to the project show up, people who are agnostic to it or, or maybe in favor don't show up. And again, w- when you look at the crowd at a public meeting, it's not a random sampling of the neighborhood. It's retirees, people who own homes, people who own homes for a long time. I'm almost always the youngest person by 10, 20, 30 years at these public meetings. And also, in many cases, I'm the only voice out of a group of maybe 100 that's in favor of the, uh, of the development. And again, because I think that we need more housing in Toronto. Just so you know, you do have support out there. My wife loves writing letters to support development. In uh, <laughs> every time we get one of these notices, that's because you make her do it, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think I think that you know we, we have this broken process whereby we're obviously these letters are are good and appreciated, and us showing up to the public meetings I think does some good, but it's not. I don't think a scalable solution. Ultimately, I think what we need are is is to update our zoning so that more of these projects could be as of right, and you don't give veto power to the neighbor who's worried about a shadow on their cabbage patch. 
So at these public meetings, um, you'd have you're seeing a large NIMBY contingent, yes. a smaller YIMBY contingent. City uh, often there's usually? no like we we uh, it'll be me maybe and, and two guys. Okay, we will be the YIMBY contingent, and that's okay. there and they're both just members of Housing Matters. Or, that's right. Do, do yeah. you often do you ever come across a guy that lives in the neighborhood that comes up and says thanks for showing up? I really need your support. It's happened, and it's always we're always very pleasantly surprised. So so it happens infrequently enough that we really notice it and we chase them down and kind of say thanks for showing up. But it's it's very rare. Before we get into what other things you're doing to, to support this cause, let's talk about just your membership profile and, sure. and who, who you are finding and joining your group and how many you have. And, and maybe even just for those listeners, let's just get out there how they can find you and, and who, how to contact you. Sure. So we don't have traditional members in the sense that people don't register and pay a fee to be members. We, we host events and people show up to our events. Generally, they skew younger, they skew renter, aspiring homeowner, some homeowners, especially younger homeowners who might want this sort of density in their neighborhood that could support more kind or, of commercial or have amenities. struggled through affordability and understand the issue and, and understand how hard it is to find the That's house right. that you need to support your family or yeah. grow into. Yeah. Or, or there are people that just really want Toronto to be a world-class city and see kind of this antiquated land use regime as being kind of a barrier to that. So that's sort of the demographic trend we see. We, we host most of our events downtown. So we see a lot of people who work downtown showing up to our events, tech workers, people who wouldn't normally be all that interested in uh, housing policy, but we try to make it as interesting as we can. Uh, we have a mailing list of about six, 7,000 people, um, which we're obviously trying to grow. And if you want to join that, you can check out our website at torontohousingmatters.com. We're also pretty active on Twitter at torontohousing underscore. And you, you personally are very active on Twitter as well, I've noticed. I am also more active than I should be on Twitter. <laughs> opinionated. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good read. I, I love opinionated uh, Twitterers, I guess you call it. I love yeah. tweeters. Tweeters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, uh, if you're on Twitter, it's probably worth, uh, worth engaging Chris. Yeah, we, we find that Twitter, you don't get kind of the, the median Trontonian on Twitter. But what you do get are a lot of journalists, a lot of policymakers, a lot of thought leaders. So in terms of influencing the people that influence other people, uh, it's a good place to be. Do you have any upcoming events? Uh, we don't have any planned upcoming events. We're working on a policy paper that we'd like to release sometime just after the municipal election, and that will kind of kick off a new event series. And the best way to connect with that would be through the mailing list. I through assume. the mailing list, okay. yeah. So torontohousingmatters.com, join the ma- mailing list or, or follow us on Twitter. Okay, so we'll, yeah, we'll put that in the uh, show notes for this episode as well. For anybody interested in uh, you know, connecting with Chris's uh, operation, we'll have that there for you. So let's keep moving then. So aside from showing up to meetings, what other types of lobbying, I mean, for lack of a better word, or maybe you tell me what you kind of call it, but what else are you doing to sure. try to get the message out? I mentioned that we're writing a policy paper. So again, we focus a lot on land use rules and, and zoning and, and ways in which that it constrains housing supply. One of the kind of the most shocking stats that we found when, when going through this process is that two thirds of Toronto's residential land has been set aside for detached housing only. So a huge geography set aside for detached housing in a city that is experiencing extreme demand pressures and has an obvious shortage of housing. So we're writing a policy paper that would be targeting the two main municipal documents that regulate land use, which are the official plan and zoning bylaw, and kind of proposing ways in which we think that it needs to be updated to accommodate more more people and more houses. Is this the the yellow belt? Yeah, so the yellow belt is is a term that was coined by Jill or Gil, I think Jill Meslin on Twitter. Uh, he's a he's an urban planner, and it represents the neighborhood's land use area as defined in the official plan. So if you look at the official plan land use map, uh, most of it is yellow. People talk a lot about the green belt as being a, a supply constraint, and, and we don't really get into that. But within the city of Toronto, the yellow belt is is a huge supply constraint. On one hand, you have the official plan that requires that any new development within the yellow belt reflect and reinforce the existing physical character. 
So if the existing physical character, again, is a neighborhood of detached houses, good luck trying to build a triplex or a row of townhouses. And then second to that, you also have to look at the zoning bylaw where we have, I think it's six residential zones that span the yellow belt and the largest of which is RD, residential detached. And again, this is the, the two thirds of that yellow belt being um, set aside for detached housing. So under, under that zoning, it is considered fully built out essentially. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, that term, I, I don't think I'd even heard it six months ago, but since then I've heard it 50 times. Yeah, and I think I think this is kind of a testament to the Twitter effect where, again, you have a lot of journalists that are following a lot of people saying saying good things on this issue. And the Yimby cause is one that we found doesn't fit neatly into a traditional political spectrum. We have people approaching supply constraints from different angles. If you're coming from the left, you might care about poverty reduction, equity you might have green objectives. Dense living is obviously better for the environment than urban sprawl. Uh, and if you're coming at it from the right, maybe you care about deregulation, markets, and that sort of thing. So we have this wide array of people that are talking about land use rules, that are talking about housing supply, who have narrowed in on the yellow belt as being kind of the main supply constraint. And we've we've seen uh, it come up more frequently as, as something that's being talked about, even in, in the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star have written stories about it as being something that probably needs to be reformed. And I believe that... Um Jen Keysmat, who's a Toronto mayoral candidate, as well as the former chief planner of Toronto. I think she's used that term as well. As part of, she's a big proponent of mid-rise on the avenues. and uh, Yeah, she's a big proponent of mid-rise on the avenues. What we're talking about is expanding into the neighborhoods. So even mid-rise on avenues, and this is not you know necessarily criticism of Keysmat, but just kind of the, the way that we think about land use, you have your mid-rise guidelines that kind of set the, the building envelope as, as it would be allowed on an avenue. And just kind of one example of how we prioritize these low-density, often detached housing neighborhoods over the needs need for homes is, you know, you require a 45-degree angular plane on the on the side of, of the mid-rise building that is facing the neighborhood. So to avoid... Wait, wait, cast- wait, go back. Explain that a little bit more. Sure. So, Expand on that slightly because my brain is like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so if you're, let's say you're building a project on St. Clair Avenue and it's on the south side of St. Clair and there's a neighborhood immediately south of it. For those listening, St. Clair Avenue is a... Uh, a, a mid-Toronto, but considered downtown uh, part of the city. East-west right. yeah. thoroughfare. Major yeah. east-west thoroughfare. We have kind of a, a streetcar there that's separated from other traffic. There's been a lot of investment in infrastructure. It's it's somewhere we, sh- we should probably be seeing more housing. Uh, if you're building a mid-rise condo or rental building on St. Clair on the south side, so just immediately south to your site, you would have detached or semi-detached houses in the neighborhood. The south end of your building needs to be in compliance with a 45-degree angular plane that kind of ensures that no shadows are cast by your building on the house immediately south of you. So you could lose dozens of homes per project to avoid casting a shadow on one or two homes to the south of you. And that would include shadows cast, you know, near sunset where the angle would be the sharpest towards the neighboring That's right. properties. Yeah. First, what it does is at the margin, it makes a lot of these projects just economically unfeasible. And second, what it does is for the projects that are uh, able to continue, again, you're losing dozens of homes for people to avoid casting a shadow on one or two homes. So just the way that we weigh these, these costs and benefits skews always and overwhelmingly in favor of established homeowners at the cost of younger people, lower income people who need homes. If you're looking at, uh, you know, if you're to weight it from benefit and cost, I mean, you're affecting two homes of the shadow, but gaining six units up, you're. And it's usually much more than six units. If you're building, you know, I, th- I think on St. Clair, you could probably build eight to nine stories based on on the right of way. Again, that's another way that the mid- mid-rise guidelines define the building envelope. It could be dozen, dozens of units on, on uh, let's say, a 60-foot frontage. We were talking about uh, Yellow Belt. That's going into the neighborhoods. Obviously, we're talking about avenues right now. But you think about 
all the the airspace being underutilized in the city of Toronto. People, you know, developers are busy fighting over scraps of land you could barely park a car on to try and uh, build on. Right. And there's all this unused land, just acres and acres and acres, sitting right above our existing. Properties. So there's all this unused land, and and what's interesting is the the language in the official plan I mentioned. Um, basically, the policy objective is stability of these neighborhoods, and it speaks the need of reflecting, reinforcing the physical character. But these neighbors are not stable in any meaningful way. If you take a look at the census tracts and kind of map them over the official plan, most of our Yellow Belt neighborhoods are actually reducing in population and reducing in density because you have these homes that are aging where the kids have moved out and might be a widower, but they're not able to repurpose that home to be a triplex, three-unit triplex, and kind of introduce some new density. So these neighborhoods are actually hollowing out at a time, again, when we have these extreme demand pressures on the avenues in downtown and midtown where we actually are allowed to build any housing. Have you or has your group ever discussed, um, like, as of right taxing, uh, changing property tax laws for for taxing the as of right potential use rather than taxing it as you know the value of the land? We purposely avoid discussions of taxation. We have a lot of uh, Georgists in our group, so George, that, that refers to Henry George, this uh, economist who uh, actually kicked off the progressive movement with a proposal of a land value tax. So there's a lot of lot of kind of interesting wonky debate over whether we should be taxing only land values at their highest and best use, or we should also be taxing um, whatever improvements are made to land that land. We we basically avoid it is kind of the short answer to your question. What we do talk about a lot though is as of as of right zoning and the fact that again to avoid providing neighborhoods and residents associations with a de facto veto right on a lot of these projects, we should be able to build a lot more density um, as of right. Do you want to move into inclusionary zoning? I'll just say one more point okay, on the Yellow sure. Belt and kind of what we would like to see. So if you look at the old city of Toronto, our neighborhood's area has one zone and it's R, residential. In the residential zone, you could build duplexes, triplexes, semi-detached houses, towns, stacked towns, and even four-story walk-up apartments where you've seen a lot of these kind of built in the post-war era and they blend in pretty well with neighborhoods. You see them on Palmerston. You see them actually all over the old city of Toronto and, they, and they, they're very desirable and they're they, they provide a lot of housing in a relatively small footprint. We would like to see that extended to the whole city of Toronto. We would like to see every neighborhood in Toronto allow for these housing types. And I think that there are ways that you can introduce density. You can introduce housing units. You can introduce homes without some of the kind of scarier aspects of density of, and new construction. We've created a market in Toronto that's extremely bifurcated. Where on one hand, we're building really nice semi-detached and detached housing a lot of times these are kind of being renovated for high-end finishes and that sort of thing. And then we're building extremely dense high-rise housing, uh, again, in Midtown, downtown, and some mid-rise on avenues. But this missing middle housing typology of your duplexes all the way up to your mid-rise, we're not really seeing a lot of it being built. And it, it's a gentle form of density that it could accommodate a lot and absorb a lot of this new demand in a way that wouldn't necessarily be all that offensive or scary to neighbors. So you go have a magic wand. That's what you do to the... Uh... If, if, if we had a magic wand, and this is what we're going to say in our in our policy paper that we'll be releasing soon, is one, we need to remove any sort of stability as a policy objective from the official plan. And two, we want to consolidate all residential zones in the, in the zoning bylaw to just R, so that all these housing typologies, again, from detached and semi-detached all the way through to four-story walk-up apartments, are allowed as of right throughout the city. How much of the NIMBYs hate that? I think the residents associations, so so the NIMBYs would hate it a lot. You get these big fights over kind of tall towers downtown and midtown, but some of the fiercest fights are actually over a row of eight townhouses in an otherwise kind of low-density, stable neighborhood. So that's okay. 
<laughs> it's costly. People, people, people need homes. Are you finding momentum? Like, are you, are you, I think you said it started this three years ago, right? right? So, are you finding momentum? Are you finding more people kind of coming away from no steadfast, not in my backyard? So, you know what? Maybe we do need this because the affordability you know, crisis, if you can call it that, is getting worse, right? Absolutely. We're, we're finding surprisingly that we're actually getting a lot of support from homeowners. So I think there's this kind of mythology in the city and counselors kind of buy into it that residents associations represent the neighborhoods. Whereas that's, that, we don't find that to be true at all. Residents associations represent the people who have enough time and anger to show up and fight development for whatever reason. The neighborhoods have a, have a much greater variety of opinions. And we talk to a lot of homeowners who are now very concerned that their children and their grandchildren will not be able to live in their cities. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm 35. And, and so most of my friends' parents and my parents are in their 60s. And when I have conversations with them about this, it's always, uh, I don't know how you guys are going to do it. When I was your age, I could just save, you know, save one year's worth of savings. And I could, there's my down payment to buy my nice house with a picket fence. Like it was so easy for right. us. And you guys are just screwed basically. Yeah. And how are you going to deal with it? So so we're, that we're, seems to be the, the general consensus in my world. Maybe I'm just, I'm bubbled, but. No, I, I think that's right. We're, we're experiencing the same thing. A lot of parents would rather be able to visit their grandchildren, you know, a 20 minute ride away versus having to go to Hamilton because that's the only place their children could afford housing. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of uh, baby boomers aging and they would, they would like to be able to age within their communities, if not necessarily in their houses. And, and again, because of these land use rules, we can't build nice, gentle, density uh, retirement communities. Or we can't, we can't build the sort of uh, triplexes or, or just smaller units that would accommodate someone to downsize from a big detached house while staying in their community. So there are all sorts of self-interested reasons why homeowners are actually kind of buying into the sort of things we're saying. And, and we think that's a positive trend. And, and now what we need them to do is to speak out against the residents' associations and make it clear to the counselors that they don't represent them, that the NIMBY voices are often the loudest voices but they're not maybe the most representative of the actual. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you do that? It's very tough. It's an extremely tough political problem because of these incentives we talked about. If you're in favor of one particular development, you don't have too much incentive to actually show up. Whereas if you're opposed to it, you're very angry and you do show up. The costs of new development are very localized, whereas the benefits are regional. So if you want to see rents in Toronto drop from $2,200 for one bedroom apartment, which is what we're seeing now, to $1,800, the, the one project in your neighborhood will actually not make a difference. We need this to be done at scale. So it might just be that you don't think your voice makes that much of a difference. You can't tie the benefit of one small development in your neighborhood to this broader regional problem. Whereas if you care about shadow impacts, killing this one project makes a big difference. It's, it's night and day to you. So is the answer not just counselors? I think the answer is maybe counselors. What a lot of YIMBY groups throughout North America have found is that ultimately municipal politics are too skewed in favor of NIMBYs. And what you need is a higher level of government to step in and start kind of dictating. The but you the OMB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OMB as a municipal check, as a judicial check, but also, also maybe there's, so our official plan needs to reflect provincial policy and provincial policy is, is very important. Cities in Ontario are creatures of the province. And our perspective here is that if the city can't do the right thing, and it's very obvious to us that they cannot, the province needs to step in. Do councillors care about the YIMBY vote? No. Because Yimbies don't vote. <laughs> Yimbies are young renters. They don't vote, which is a big problem. So yeah. there, there's another avenue of, to tackle. Right. Everybody's try to get, has been trying to get young people to vote more. And it's, and it's something that is not new to our cause. And it's something that is very uh, hard to do. Young people are 
too busy doing fun uh, young people things, right? <laughs> give them, give them, do the is like New Zealand or Australia. Give them twenty bucks for voting, and you get a lot more showing up. I think. I think what we need to do is kind of we need to reinstate this idea. Maybe it's a cultural idea that exclusionary practices are antisocial. There should be kind of a, a level of of acceptable behavior. We've seen things. Uh, said and done at public meetings that in any other context would be extremely frowned upon. We have in Toronto, a city that's extremely progressive, very welcoming in principle to immigration and to new people in the city as a whole. And then that ends at their neighborhood lines. So people we've seen, you know, to give one example, there was a house in the annex uh, and it had two signs on it. And one was something positive in favor of accepting more Syrian refugees. And another one was on blocking the apartment building that was going to be built two blocks away. So we, we want to point out that hypocrisy, that if you are a progressive welcoming person with, with kind of good things in your heart, you need to extend that to your neighborhood. And it's not enough to say we want more people in our country, in our city, if you're not going to let them live in your neighborhood, because people need to live somewhere. And I was at a public meeting for a, a purpose-built rental project in, in Midtown. And again, Midtown is is a part of the city that is specifically designated for growth. It's an urban growth center. And I made the point that if this project were not to proceed, the people who would live in it don't stop existing. They, they need to go somewhere. Where are they supposed to go? And somebody yelled, Scarborough. And someone else yelled, Brampton. So, so not a very welcoming attitude. It's extremely exclusionary. If this was based on any other factor uh, or de- demographic factor other than the fact that you have renters versus owners, it would not be accepted in play company. So we think there needs to be a cultural shift. And we think that we're starting to see the beginnings of that. Well said. Inclusionary vo- zoning. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So inclusionary zoning is, is I saw a Toronto Star article that said inclusionary zoning, colon, something that experts might be calling the silver bullet to our affordability problems. And I completely butchered that title. Uh, <laughs> inclusionary zoning is absolutely not a silver bullet. So what we focus on is market rate affordability. We think that we need to increase funding for social housing. We think social housing plays a very important role in the housing spectrum. But what we're worried about with inclusionary zoning is the fact that in order to benefit the 20%, let's say, of residents that get these below market rate houses or homes, someone needs to bear that cost. And there hasn't really been any incidence analysis done to say, is it the landowner who's going to bear that cost through lower land prices? Is it the developer through tighter margins? Or is it the 80% of other residents who now, in an already extremely expensive market, will be paying more to subsidize these 20% of units? If we think as a society that it's important to subsidize and to support the lowest income of our residents, then that cost should be borne broadly by the general tax base. This should be, this should be paid for through property taxes and other means. It should not be borne exclusively by new home buyers and renters who, again, skew younger and lower income. So it would push the market rate up effectively. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a it's a very valid uh, very valid point. I actually, had the same discussion with my wife last night. Oddly, oddly enough, <laughs> I'll get her to listen to this episode. I mentioned. Are you twice. in trouble? You keep you keep mentioning it. Yeah, I'm never in trouble. No, I, I will say that there there has been some back and forth on how the regulation will actually be set. Whether the developers would be compensated for these below market units or not, and now with the change of provincial government, it's a little unclear how we'll see that happen. But again, absent buy in and support from the broader tax base then the cost necessarily will be borne, I think, by, by the, the other unit buyers. Um, you mentioned uh, voting and, or lack of participation in voting. Uh, affordability has been a big issue in our local Toronto mayoral race, yes. with, uh, which is coming up, uh, I guess, in a couple of weeks. We'll find out who wins that. But affordability has been probably you know, one of the top three issues, I would say, 
in terms of yeah i i would say it's number one but it's definitely at least number two with maybe transportation and the two big you know headline making promises is john tory's promised uh, i believe forty thousand units of affordable and Jen Keysmat has trumped him by promising 100,000 units, but nobody's really defined how they're providing any. Well, it was, was 40,000 units in 12 years versus 100,000 units in 10 years. Not that that really right. makes any difference, but. Right. And you're right. Neither is saying how. How. One thing I'll say on that point is uh, just to narrow the scope a little bit. We focus on market rate affordability. We think that there are a lot of good arguments and a, good, a lot of good reasons why we should be building below market units. But there are a lot of good groups focusing on that. What's disappointing to us when we look to the municipal race is that housing affordability is absolutely, in our view, a top concern for our residents. And anytime it gets brought up as a question, it gets hand, the discussion gets hand-waved away into a discussion about funding social housing mm-hmm. or setting aside city lands for below market housing. But what are we going to do about market rents? Most of us pay market rents. Most of us, when we buy homes, are paying market prices. If we don't address the official plan, if we don't address the zoning bylaw, then we're tinkering at the margins. We're going to create a, a city that is open and welcoming to low-income people, which I want to kind of emphasize is very important, Absolutely. and high-income people who could afford uh, market rates and nobody in between. And we're already seeing this hollowing out. If you want to see true diversity in incomes and in demographics, you go to the suburbs. You actually you, you don't see much of that in Toronto itself. So. Very, very optimistic and hopeful on both of these proposals. We hope that, you know, whether it's Tory or Keysmat who win, that they see these promises through and that they're able to achieve those targets. But we also need to broaden the discussion to talk about market rate affordability. Any uh, Canadian cities getting it right in terms of uh, supporting the middle? Montreal is doing a better job at this than Toronto is. Uh, The CMHC recently put out a paper that did some analysis to measure the supply response to rising prices. So this is so economists measure the price elasticity of supply. So how how responsive supply is to increases in prices. And this paper was further analyzed by the Ryerson Center for Urban Research, Diana Petromala, who's an excellent economist there. And they found that if if our supply was as responsive to uh, rising prices as Montreal's, I forget the exact figure, but we would have seen something like 50,000 more units built over the last 10 years. So you have in some of these cities more permissive zoning. Toronto is, is of, of our large cities, the city that requires mo- the most rezoning applications when, whenever a new, a new proposal is put forth. Uh, we see very little as of right zoning, uh, sorry, as of right development. And that's because our zoning is, is so old and, and constraining. So if we adopted more of a Montreal model, could Jenkies Mad deliver on 100,000 units in 10 years? I can't speak well to any other constraints on the labor or capital side. So, so I don't know. What I will say, when we look beyond Canada's borders, Seattle has been building a lot of rental stock recently. And in those neighborhoods where rental housing has been built kind of in largest volumes, we're actually seeing rents drop. So not only is the rate of growth slowing, but you're seeing rents drop. And this is kind of in going with our thesis that, you know, the laws of supply and demand apply to housing as well. And if you build enough supply, prices should come down. We see that as kind of a positive example. When we look internationally, Tokyo is extremely interesting where you have a city, uh, first of all, the metropolitan area of 36 million people, so they're very familiar with demand pressures. The city of Tokyo itself has increased in population by 400,000 people since 2011, and yet their housing prices have increased at an annual rate of 2.5%. So you can imagine, Toronto, first of all, our population has not grown nearly that, that much in the last 10 years, and our housing prices have skyrocketed. If we were to get to that rate of growth in prices, housing would still be affordable. Now, the difference between Tokyo and Toronto, one of the big differences is that their zoning is set nationally. It is not subject to these local political pressures. It's not subject to kind of the NIMBY veto. 
and you're seeing that reflected in prices and availability. And then what has Seattle done to precipitate that that amount of development? So Seattle, in the same way, uh, they were seeing a lot of demand pressures uh, because Amazon and Microsoft and a lot of other headquarters are based there. And one way that they thought to address this was to allow for more of their city to accommodate more housing, more rental stock. And it's getting built and it's having an impact on prices in a way that if you look at San Francisco. That was was through zoning in Seattle. Yes. Right. And Americans are not afraid of building very quickly. Despite right. Toronto building very quickly, but... Uh, well, curiously, a little bit off topic, but someone was telling me yesterday that Houston has no zoning. So I love Houston. And, and this is not kind of a housing matters position, uh, but I love zone. Uh, I love Houston. Houston has no zoning. Houston experiences a lot of urban sprawl in a way that I think if Toronto were to adopt a similar zoning regime, we would not because we're an older city with, with better public infrastructure and, and more transit. But Houston has extremely affordable housing. So you could buy a detached lot in Houston and turn it into six stack townhouses without any special permission. And what you're seeing in Houston, one of the things that has exacerbated sprawl in Houston is they have minimum parking requirements and they have minimum lot sizes. They've now in downtown Houston, and they're actually expanding the zone, removed all minimum parking requirements. So this is a city that gets criticized often for being extremely sprawly and car centric. And yet their parking requirements are less car-centric than Toronto's. We still have minimum parking requirements on the books. They do not, at least not in the downtown. So, yeah, big fan of Houston. We look to it as, a, as an example often. The development cycle would be incredibly short with, uh, with that setup. Yeah, I've, sp- I've spoken to a development lawyer, and he had a client from Toronto uh, who was looking to buy something in Texas, one of the big Texas cities. And they went to meet the local counselor, the local planner, and said, okay, this is our lot. This is their size. What, what can we build? What's kind of allowable here? And the attitude was, well, it's your land, you know build what you want to build on your land. Uh, and God bless America. Which, which is, and again, this is not, this is not an endorsement of a completely free for all system, no, but we've gone so far in the opposite direction that even in the, on the avenues where growth is encouraged, where we, where we want to see more units built. Again, you have these silly rules like the 45 degree angular plane that makes it very hard to make the projects work economically. And then when they do, you're not building as much housing as you should be. We've talked quite a bit about uh, market rent. How much does Housing Matters care about the price of houses? People trying to get into the market as purchasers rather than renters. We care a lot. So we, we as a group, are tenure agnostic. If you're a renter, if you're an aspiring buyer, we think that uh, in both cases, you're probably paying too much and you're paying more than you should be. Rents have increased by the most that they have in 15 years last year, I mentioned. And, and our housing prices are extremely expensive. I'm Currently in this position, I'm 32 years old. Though I'm renting. I have a six-month-old. We're looking to buy a house, and it's it's very hard oh, to it make sucks. <laughs> the numbers yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. And what you're seeing with a lot of my friends, I'm sure some of your friends, is this kind of drive till you qualify attitude. I have friends who are moving to the other side of the green belt, and they work downtown Toronto to be able to afford housing. Curtis. Right. Yeah. On equity grounds, on environmental grounds, on the grounds that people should be able to spend more time with their children. This is such a bad state of affairs. And the reason why this is happening is very simple. People try to make this problem to be, you know, tricky and complex. It's because we're not building enough housing close to employment zones or employment densities. The employment density in downtown Toronto has intensified over the last 10 years. The the promise of the internet, I think, was that we would see more kind of decentralization of, of employment, but we've seen actually the opposite. It's been urbanizing. It's been concentrating. But we're not building enough houses enough homes to support the people that work in these places. When compounding that, we've talked about it before, again, on this podcast, the the amount of uh, new office supply that's coming online and office right. vacancy, like there's going to be much, much more office coming into the downtown core over the next five, five, 10, 15 years. And what you get with this employment density, I think it's a positive trend, actually. And this is 
again, my my position, it's not one that's codified in the Housing Matters uh, Constitution, but uh, you get these agglomeration economies or economies of agglomeration, which lead to higher productivity, which leads to just more prosperity generally. And all these, this kind of, this virtuous cycle of people living in denser areas and being able to contribute to more product, productive activity and us seeing that reflected in, you know, ultimately GDP growth, this is all being stunted and slowed down by NIMBY attitudes. Um, you have people living in extremely low productivity regions of the province um, who can't find work. And then you have employers downtown Toronto who can't find employees, and I'm one of them. And the one thing that's making it very difficult for people from, let's say, London to move to Toronto are our housing prices. Of course. Yeah. We didn't uh, really talk about your uh, employment background at the beginning, but to be specific, you're looking to hire people, not that you're unemployed. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I have a, a little digital agency and... Um, we, we hire software developers and it's, it's very hard to do. And there are parts of the province where it's very hard to find a job. And again, the way that these things have usually kind of come together is through labor mobility, where when we had the auto sector boom in Detroit, people moved from all over the United States to Detroit to participate in that prosperity and that productivity. And they built enough houses to accommodate them. Now we're having a similar boom in the Bay Area and San Francisco. And people are effectively excluded from that opportunity because housing prices are insane. And back to the concept about people moving out of the city due to the, the affordability problem, talking to some gentleman from London saying they get knocks on their door, you know, once a month, twice a month from people, from realtors saying, I've got a client, lives in Toronto, what will, you, what will you accept for your house? Well, it's not for sale. Well, how about X dollars? Well, it's not for sale. Okay, how about this? Because they, there are just people that need to get out of this or want to get out of the city just because of you know, they can sell their house in Toronto for a million bucks, yeah. buy a house twice the size in London, Ontario for 500,000, yeah. pocket the cash and cost of living is down. You know, it's just, it's an easier, easier lifestyle. Five minute walk to work five or five minute drive to work, more time with your children, as you say, like it is happening. There are, there is an exodus occurring. Right. And it's an exodus, exodus that's occurring, not in line with market forces, because I think we're seeing this trend towards concentration, but as a response and as a consequence of housing prices which is extremely perverse. If we care about reducing urban sprawl, this is not the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, again, anecdotally, I could, I could rhyme off you know, five friends of mine who've moved to Hamilton or to Barrie or somewhere where you really are away from Toronto right. and is driven entirely by housing prices. Same in Vancouver, I can name friends that moved to you know, Regina. Well, housing yeah. prices, and, and of course, they are tied together. I'm sure in your, in your as you say, in your constitution, it probably doesn't talk about transportation, but having to commute an hour to an hour and a half just to get to work and spending two to three hours a day of your life just sitting in traffic or sitting on tra public transportation well, you, you has mentioned, a huge uh, issue. So you, you mentioned friends living outside of the Greenbelt. That probably is an hour and a half commute if you work downtown where we are right now. Right. And, and I, this is a friend with a newborn who would probably like to see his newborn somewhere. I think that when we, when the planning department and counselors and even our mayors think about the cost of new development, they think a lot about, we, we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the cost of shadow impacts, of parking strains, of traffic congestion. But there's this whole series of unseen costs and these are the costs that are borne by people that have to commute this much and they're not being considered and they're not being kind of brought into the equation when we don't build enough housing it leads to a lot of uh, negative consequences it, more immediate than just the fact that housing is expensive like social consequences social consequences you have all these second order effects i think there's a good argument to be made that i don't know if this is too off scope for our discussion but the political setup in the u.s is largely being driven by people who again are being excluded from the high productivity regions along the coast and the major cities and they're feeling completely left out of this global economic boom because they're they're not being allowed to move into people's neighborhoods who don't want shadow impacts. Do developers ever reach out to you looking for support? They do. So what we 
do and what we're very careful in doing is kind of we are a grassroots advocacy organization. We care about housing affordability and we care about housing availability. So we look to prices and we look to rental vacancy rates and sales volume. Which happens to mean more development. Now, yes, it just so happens that the solution that we propose and and the solution that we think is, is, um, well, actually just backing up a little bit just to make this a little more concrete. There are three ways in which you can make housing more affordable in Toronto. Okay, and this this is an exhaustive list. You could reduce demand, you could increase supply, or you could set price controls. And when you set price controls, you have these second order effects that are that are often hard to hard to think about. A lot of action has been taken by all three levels of governments on reducing demand. You've had a foreign buyers tax implemented provincially, municipally, we're trying to regulate and do away with short-term rentals to some extent. Not a lot of action has been taken on supply. So we're here to talk about housing supply. We're here to advocate for housing supply. Now, it just so happens that we have this industry that's pretty good building housing and at, at increasing supply and they're called developers. So our interests align. And I think that's very clear and, and obvious to both our supporters and our detractors. We are extremely careful in maintaining our independence as a grassroots advocacy organization. We're not here to speak on the, the merits of, you know, the finishes in any given development project. We're here to speak of the regional benefits of development as a whole. We, we're talking about raw units. The raw number of units matters. So developers do reach out we have a pretty strict policy on uh, to what extent we are willing to work with developers and, and it's to a pretty limited extent. What we would like to see, just going back to our prior discussion, is we would like to see employers, major employers, kind of understand the impact of high housing prices on their employees. If they want employees to be able to live within a reasonable commuting distance, they should also care about this issue. It shouldn't just be the developers who care about this issue. So we would like to broaden kind of our base of support to major employers for the dual benefit of one, helping these kind of disparate groups and also to make sure that we maintain our independence as a, as a grassroots advocacy group. And how are you doing that? Are you reaching out to major employers in, in the downtown core and saying, hey, you should be involved in this in this group? We're starting to. People, it's not that easy, I'm sure. It, it's just they haven't drawn the connection. And I think that this is something that's starting to change. Employers who have offices in many cities, they often have to do cost of living adjustments when they bring someone, say, from Ottawa to Toronto. So it matters quite a bit to them. And also, obviously, if you want your employees uh, to not have to leave at 3.30 to avoid rush hour to make it all the way back to Hamilton, you know, in time for dinner, this matters. If we want Toronto to be a globally competitive and prosperous region, this matters. So definitely, we're, we're trying to talk to them. We're trying to reach out to them. If we're going to be effective in this fight against NIMBYism and against exclusionary zoning and, and supply constraints generally, we're going to need scale. It's a very tough problem. Most cities in North America have not solved this problem. We think that our solution... Uh, is a good one, but the politics are extremely tricky. So we, we're going to need scale. For us to achieve scale, we need buy-in from all sorts of stakeholders. Well, I'll actually I'll ask a question of uh, Aaron then. So we're currently located in uh, downtown Toronto in what would be a very expensive part of the city to live in. That's where the First National office is. Aaron's involved in hiring. Do you feel like that is a detriment to trying to attract some talent to work here in our yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it is, and it's it's a tricky. That's a fine line because you can't really ask, you know, where do you live, and you know, do you, are you married? You, you really can't get into those personal questions, but you have to kind of get a sense for what's your situation because if you want to live downtown or you are living downtown, am I is this position offering enough money to afford you to afford that, or are you living with your parents? Are you living in Mississauga? Like there is that absolutely there is that that consideration. We we it, we as a city we've we've done a lot of work to attract Amazon's second headquarters HQ two. I think what, what a lot of people have not thought about is that if we attract this HQ2, which you know is still up in the air, Amazon has promised 50,000 net new jobs. That's about three city places worth of new people 
working for Amazon. High earners mostly. Yeah. How, how do the residents associations feel about us being able to add that many new units to the housing market, which is what we would have to do? Uh, they're probably not too excited about it. Should they be the ones deciding Toronto's fate and deciding our future as, as a global prosperous city or not? And, and we don't think they should be. There was an article actually a while ago about uh, what the impact of inserting that many jobs into the various cities competing for this, uh, you know, I guess great honor of being the HQ2, the effect it would have on uh, housing prices or rental in the area. And it was, you know, multiple percentages growth in uh, cost to the, all residents of the city. We've seen the same thing. Richard Florida, I think, has made the point that, you know, attracting HQ2 means extreme pressures on both your housing market and your transportation network. And again, people, I think, tend to overthink these problems or, or overcomplicate them. Build more housing, build more transit. That's it. All right, we're done then. <laughs> Great podcast. Thanks for coming. We'll edit it down to just that. <laughs> we, we have this saying as a group, um, which cuts through a lot of the technocratic tinkering and the, and the overcomplicating of the issue. If we want more people to have housing in Toronto, we're going to need to build more housing for people in Toronto. And I think that really encapsulates the problem or the solution. Um, inclusionary zoning is too clever by half. It's a way to try to have a free lunch. It's a way to get affordable units without actually having to spend any tax dollars on it. Well, things don't work out that way. Someone's going to have to pay that cost. We think that it'll large, largely be borne by other homeowners, uh, new homeowners, people who are buying into these, into these projects. If we want more people to have housing, we need to build more housing. I read a, I mean, I'll give you the word criticism, but maybe it wasn't that, that um, inserting a lot of new supply into areas that uh, I guess would be, a, we call it more modest income, the byproduct of that would be gentrification of areas. So while you are inserting a lot of supply, that's what we're talking about now is inserting supply all across the city, you would see some more marginalized areas suffering the ill effects of gentrification. Uh, do you buy into that argument or... I read it as, as a, actually a, in a comment underneath an article you wrote. Sure. And so I thought it intrigued me. So I thought I'd bring it up. I'm not saying that I endorse that, but it just. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so I think the question is, is gentrification a byproduct of supply? Yeah. Uh, of increased supply. We, we think that gentrification is a byproduct of increased demand. When you have people working downtown Toronto who can't find any units available for them in Liberty Village. They go a little further west. They go into Parkdale. They go to Jameson Avenue and they look for units there. Come and to New Toronto. They have purchasing power that's higher than kind of the, the traditional residents in Parkdale. And they're often able to price them out. We've seen a number of rooming houses in Parkdale that have been purchased and converted to kind of detached housing. So losing 12 units, let's say, in a rooming house to become one house for one family. When you have this increased demand on a neighborhood, supply, not only is supply not the cause, but supply is the solution. You need to, you need to build homes to accommodate these new buyers, these new renters, or else you're going to displace the existing community. So not only should we not be limiting supply, let's say in Parkdale, use one example, we should be building a lot more housing in Parkdale if we are to preserve Jameson Avenue for people who have lived there for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Now, new supply, because it's new, often has nicer finishes and sweet laundry. It, it kind of acts as a community amenity to a certain extent. So it does also make the neighborhood more desirable, which in turn attracts even more demand. So there is this kind of this cycle that happens just necessarily. But the solution, again, you will not solve this by stopping new development. Geographically, Parkdale is close enough to downtown that it's going to be attractive whether you build new condos or not. People are going to move there and they're going to price out the current residents. If we want to stop that, we need, we need more homes for these people. If we want people to not convert rooming houses into, let's say, triplex, Let's allow for triplexes city, citywide. And also, while we're at it, let's allow for rooming houses citywide. 
I love the rebuttal. Great. <laughs> <laughs> one thing we didn't talk about was, um, you know, government incentivization for supply. I mean, one that we as lenders are seeing quite a lot, Aaron and I being lenders, of course, is CMHC rolled out a new affordable program, May of 2017. And there's been great uptake in the market. Many people have, or many developers have looked into it and are currently underway with it. We've got quite a lot in our pipeline, and you'll hear it first national. You mentioned before uh, two things that kind of spring to mind in this. One is to qualify for the CMHC affordable program, you need to have uh, rents that are about 10% below market. So your view is that that would exacerbate that problem where you're offsetting the cost to the people who are not receiving the discounted uh, rents. I, I don't think so in this scenario. What I was talking about specifically was inclusionary zoning, where you okay. have you know a certain ratio of units in one project being set at below market rates. That cost needs to be borne by somebody. And in order for the developer to be make a profit on the development? Is that, is we, that we where just, you're coming from? In, in our research and in our discussions, we don't think that that cost will come out of developers' margins because capital is mobile and developers are mobile. And if Toronto institutes too strict of an inclusionary zoning program, they'll build more in Burlington, let's say. Our view ultimately is that some of this cost will be borne by landowners, which is perfectly fine with us. But a lot of it will also be borne by the other home buyers in the, in the remaining units. Uh, that's our concern with inclusionary zoning. Building below market units, we're very much in favor of. If again, if these costs are being distributed to the population as a whole, because we as a society have decided that it's an important policy objective. Well, this exactly, the CMHC program does facilitate that right. in that you get a superior financing package. It costs the developer less to build. And that is backed by CMHC, so which is, is a, a taxpayer. It's effectively driven. the federal yeah. government going to developers saying, I'm going to incent yeah. you to build affordable units. And I'm going to give you a discount in the premium you pay for CMHC and give you you know, less equity in so that your margins stay the same. Right. But we're, the end result is more affordable units. I think, I think that's, that's great. We should do that. We should do more of that. And we should also, if, if the affordability measure is a ratio to the median rent, let's say, let's also make some moves on, on getting that median rent down. So both, both matter. We talked quite a bit about Toronto city councillors, but we didn't really address the fact that, uh, you know, premier Ford recently cut the number in half of, councillors we're going to have in the upcoming upcoming election. What do you think the impact of that is going to be on the development process? Because councillors are pretty involved in that process. And, does that, and to add on to Adam's question, does that um, add to the NIMBYism cause or how does that impact what, what you're going to see when you go to these meetings? Right. Um, so I'm of two minds of this and I'll, I'll say that within our kind of core group of people who volunteer with Housing Matters, we have, we, we debate this, this topic uh, often. So my view is not representative of the group. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that the planning approval process should be one that is completely depoliticized. It should be a discussion between the applicant, the developer, and planning staff. It should be a bureaucratic process based on sound planning principles. When we go to public meetings, invariably, the counselor shows up and prefaces any discussion of a bureaucratic nature with the fact that don't worry, I'm opposed to this project and I'm going to make sure I fight it and, and that it doesn't get built. I think that counselors, uh, fewer counselors means counselors being spread uh, thinner over larger geographies who are then less able to show up to each individual public meeting and, and less able to kind of introduce an element of politics where, again, it should be a bureaucratic process. So cautiously optimistic. This should not be a political process. It should be set first by provincial policy, second by municipal policy through official plan and zoning bylaw as interpreted by planning staff, not by councillors. So, okay, well, we've got covered a lot today. Where, where do we end up? How, where do we go from here? What do, you, what do you see the result ultimately of your, of your activism? 
if this was a movie, what's the happy ending? You know, it's uh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm I'm not so sure that it does have a happy ending. If we look at uh, oh come on, <laughs> if we if we look at cities like New York City, let's say, which is a, a city that's further down this curve maybe than we are, both in terms of pricing, population, and and many other metrics. I think it's more likely that we continue to tinker at the edges. We make more city land, let's say, available for development. Uh, we, we, we have a portable housing benefit coming in at the federal level. We regulate Airbnb to make it so that short-term rental units now become long-term rental units. But we don't make any meaningful changes to our land use, to, to official plan or zoning bylaw policies. We don't do the sort of broad, bold action that's required to really solve this problem. And I think that absent that action, again, we will create welcoming spaces to people who qualify for these below market and subsidized units. But the middle class will continue to be priced out. I think that the future looks a lot more like San Francisco than it does Houston because there is no real political appetite, certainly not at the municipal level, to make it so that that isn't the case. We live in a democracy and and happily so. But our democracy in Toronto is dominated by people who would rather not have more housing than people who would. Okay. I don't like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's so, what we're going with. And obviously… We exist as a group to maybe change that calculus. Nothing is written in stone. We don't, we don't think the few, the, or what's Fukuyama's term, that, that history is over. We think that we can make a difference. Um, it's just going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of impact. It's going to take volunteers showing up to public meetings. It's going to take employers taking this issue seriously and, and paying for some of our social media videos. And it's going to take action, I think, from the provincial government where they're not as beholden to residents associations and NIMBYs. Chris, this is a lot. I like it. This is a great podcast. Agreed. Yeah. Go through how people could find you again. TorontoHousingMatters.com or follow us on Twitter at TorontoHousing underscore. Or go to a public meeting and you'll find Chris there. He'll be the noisy one. We'd, we'd love to have you at public meetings. Um, we're trying to have a policy shift happen, but also a cultural shift, which I think is, is almost a prerequisite to that policy shift. This is a conversation that more people need to have. I think so. Absolutely. Chris, I want to thank you a lot for coming on today. Uh, this has been fantastic. Much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.